The Salvadoran Civil War raged from 1980 to 1992. During the Bloody War, a group of Salvadorans fled their village, and they crossed the Limpa River to seek refuge in southern Honduras. It was a costly crossing, though. Many of the people were shot on the beaches, cut down in the water. That day, the Limpa River ran red. Those who made it across the river, they set up camp. And the new community's first task was to establish three committees who would establish basic services needed for their survival. There was a construction committee, there was an education committee, and there was a committee al de alegra. You Spanish people, people know, know that's not how you say it. Maria, how do you say it? Alegria, committee de alegria. Or in English, the Committee of Joy. See, this was the group that planned the celebrations. And it's interesting, on their list of necessities for survival, right up there with digging latrines and erecting roofs and teaching their children, the Salvadorians saw the value of dancing, of joy and celebration. As we learned last week, the book of Philippians is about joy at half-mast. Dancing in the midst of danger. Even though Paul is in a prison cell, though his circumstances are less than ideal, there is a joy in his heart that he wishes the Philippians and all Christians would experience. This is why he begins here in chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in the Lord. Notice first, Paul is the typical preacher. He says finally, and he's only halfway through his letter. <laughs> Never get too excited when a preacher says finally. He says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. You know, one of the best teachers is repetition. Football teams run the same plays in practice. Baseball players field grounders upon grounders. The repeated skill is necessary. They want to repeat it, in it until it becomes second nature. And some biblical truths bear repeating. We need to hear them over and over. In fact, as you survey the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus often repeated himself. Our Lord also knew that repetition is a great teacher. What Paul is about to tell the Philippians, they've heard before. He just knows they need to hear it again. And so he says... Beware of dogs. And some Bible scholars believe this is actually a prophetic warning for the teams remaining on the 2019 Georgia Bulldogs football schedule. <laughs> Florida and Auburn and Tech. and Beware of them dogs. In the Greek, it's spelled D-A-W-G-S. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. Actually, when Paul uses the word dogs, he's not thinking of UGA football players or even those cute, cuddly canines that you keep as pets. No, in ancient times, dogs were wild beasts. They were vicious predators. They were a threat to humans and a carrier of disease. And here Paul uses this term as a metaphor for the false teachers who had followed him to Philippi. They were a pack of wild dogs, he says. Carriers of contaminated doctrine. These were the guys that we first met in Galatia. You remember they, called, they were called the Judaizers. 
They believe that you gained a right standing with God through faith in the work of Christ plus a whole smorgasbord of rules and rituals. The Judaizers taught sort of a tag team approach to salvation that Jesus and the Jewish law gained a person a right standing with God. Once there was a legalistic lady, she told her pastor, she said, you know, I believe the Christian life is like a rowboat. One oar is the law, the other oar is faith in Christ. And if you drop either oar, you'll row in circles. You need both oars. Well, this wise pastor, he replied, he said, ma'am, that's a fine illustration. There's only one problem. You don't get to heaven in a rowboat. The Judaizers advocated a mixture of faith and works. Christ and law, grunt and grace, the flesh and the spirit. But Paul was adamant, righteousness, a right standing with God, is the result of Christ plus nothing. Add anything to faith in Jesus. And you've got bad news, not good news. Well, Paul says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. You know, one of the derogatory names that the Jews used to put down Gentiles was dogs. And here Paul calls the Jewish false teachers by their own denigrating title, dogs. The Judaizers taught that in order to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. That faith in Christ was not enough. That you also had to follow the Jewish rules and rituals and customs. And chief on their list of customs was circumcision. But Paul says, beware of the mutilation. How does clipping a fold of flesh add any virtue or value to a life? Real righteousness is transmitted spiritually, not physically. God wants transformation, not an operation. Rather than the works of the flesh, salvation is a gift of the Spirit. It's received through faith in God, not as a result of some human effort or feats of human flesh. It's all about grace. Paul is saying that the true children of God are not those who mutilate their body, but who purify their hearts by faith. In verse 3, he tells us, have no confidence in the flesh. And you know, when we hear that word flesh, we usually think lustful. You know, just the word flesh. It sounds kind of sketchy, sinful, and slimy, and sexual. Flesh. But the flesh, you like that, huh? You like me saying that? But the flesh actually means all that a person is apart from God. See, flesh isn't synonymous with evil. At times, Paul's flesh dressed in its Sunday best and went to church. The flesh can get religious. It can behave itself according to the strictest of religious decorum. The flesh can also refer to a man's loftiest and noblest efforts. But the problem with the flesh is that it's still man's effort. And human effort can never make us right with God. Paul says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Now if there had ever been a man who could have earned his way to God, it would have been Paul. 
And in the next two verses, he takes us on a tour through his trophy room. He shows us all of the religious trophies that he had accumulated. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. By the way, did you know that a baby's blood doesn't begin to clot until eight days after his birth? Doctors today give a baby a shot of vitamin K to speed along the process, but God knew this all along. That's why God, you know, he, he told them to circumcise the children on the eighth day. God knew when the clotting would, would uh, kick in, and so he was protecting babies for all those many, many years. Well, Paul was circumcised the eighth day according to the law. And he was of the stock of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had a star-studded pedigree. Paul was a pure-blooded Hebrew. He said, concerning the law of Pharisee. The word Pharisee means separated ones. Think of them as a religious gang that rumbled with rules and rituals. The lords of legalism, I like to call them. They were the strictest of the Jewish rabbis, and they treated outsiders with a judgmental attitude. They viewed Jewish tradition as their turf. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Boy, when followers of Jesus crossed into their side of the hood, the Pharisees got ugly, especially Paul. He wanted to rumble. The Pharisees opposed anyone who ignored their rules, and that made the early Christian their targets. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So add it all up. Surgery, pedigree, Pharisee, zealotry. According to legalism, Paul had flawless credentials. But here's what he concludes, verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. You know, the word counted means to assess or to evaluate. The Greek philosopher Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Paul had carefully calculated. He had added up his righteousness on one side, put it on a scale, and then balanced it with what God required. Reminds me of the drill sergeant who was in charge of the new troops. Their first inspection was a disaster. I mean, these soldiers, they appeared sloppy and disheveled. Finally, the sergeant was so angry, he shouted at one of his men, you step out here and take a good look at yourself. <laughs> well, that's what Paul did. He took a good look at himself. When he met Jesus, he stepped back from all his religious achievements, all the pursuits that had driven his life, and it hit him. Nothing he had lived for had come close to the joy and the blessing and the righteousness that he had in Jesus Christ by faith. In fact, Paul's religious ambitions had gotten in God's way. For as long as he was depending on his own goodness, he could never be good enough for God. In verse 8, Paul confesses. He says, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Hey, it's not what you've done but it's who you know that makes you right with God. Paul knew Jesus, and Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is our ticket to heaven. All Paul's religious credentials, all his merit badges were worthless compared to knowing Christ. 
He says in verse 9, And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. At one time in his life, Paul was proud of his religious accomplishments. They proved that he was better than his peers. Surely his good works would be pleasing to God. You know, before he came to Christ, Paul reminded me of my kids when they were little tots. Kathy had these little sailor suits. And she would dress up Zach and Natalie in these little sailor suits. They had the little bibs on the back and the little cap. They were cute as a button, I'm telling you. My kids. But you know what was funny? You'd, you'd get up close to them and take a whiff. And it was like, oh boy. They soiled in their diapers. They smelled atrocious. And I often thought, how could anything that looked that cute smell that rotten? I mean, it just, it just it didn't make sense. And this was Paul. He looked cute on the outside. He had it all together. But underneath, he stunk with pride and with self-righteousness. When Paul came to Christ, he learned that true righteousness isn't man-made. The only way for you and I to be right with God is by faith. Trust Christ and you inherit God's righteousness. You inherit the merits of Jesus. Paul now viewed all his good works, all his righteous deeds, he says, as rubbish. That term literally means dung or manure. Hey, when Paul tried to earn a right standing with God, it was all about what he could do. It was do, do, do. And all it amounted to was doo-doo. That's what he says. It was rubbish, man. It was dung. It's when he stopped trying and he trusted in Jesus that he received Christ's goodness. Corey Tin Boone used to say, nestle, don't wrestle. I like that. Nestle, don't wrestle. Rest in the work of Christ rather than try to manufacture your own. Our best efforts are manure. It's by faith we mature. And here's why the concept of righteousness is so vital. We have no access to God. We don't even know God unless we have a right standing with Him. Sin has to be forgiven. His favor has to be bestowed if you really want to know God. And that's that's why Paul's goal is in verse 10. He says, that I may know Him And the power of his resurrection. See, Paul wanted to know God. That was his passion in life. You know, everybody needs a passion. Do you have a passion in your life? Do you have a goal that supersedes all others? I like this poster of this teenage soccer player, high school soccer player. He's on the ground. He's dirty. He's exhausted. His face is wearing this painful expression. And the caption reads, No pain, no gain. No gain, no goals. No goals, no scouts. No scouts, no scholarship. No scholarship, no college. No college, no girls. No girls, get up, man. Get up. My point is we all need a goal. Oh, there you go. Thank you. And I know nothing more fulfilling than to know God. That should be our goal. Hey, a relationship with the God who created us. Man, this is the ultimate experience. There can be no higher goal. 
Again, Paul states it in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But you see, this is where a lot of us stop short. Oh, it's cool to want to know God. It's exciting to know the power of his resurrection. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also wants to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this challenges me. Have you ever had a friend who enjoyed being your friend as long as you were celebrating, as long as you were having a fun time, having a great time, but the moment problems arose, man, they split? Yeah. That's a fair-weathered friend with not a lot of loyalty. You know, it's just the opposite with our kids. You want your kids, you want to know your kids, you, you want to help your kids through their suffering and through their heartbreaks. If you love someone, you care about them not just in happy times, but especially in the times when they hurt. You know, what pains me most with my kids is to see one of my children suffering on the inside and yet throw up this facade on the outside. My boys do this. Oh, Dad, I'm okay, Dad. No, don't worry about me, Dad. No big deal. Everything's okay. I'm cool, Dad. Chill, chill Dad. You know? I hate that. I hate, I hate for them to put on the facade when it's not true, when they are hurting. I want them to be honest with me. I want them to share their hurts with me. Here's my point. If you truly love someone, you'll want to walk with them not only through their joy, but through their suffering. And this is how Paul felt about Jesus. He wanted to know Christ and his power, but also his sufferings. Lord, I want to know what grieves you. I want to know what makes you sorrowful. Lord, I want to hurt where you hurt. He desired the same kind of intimacy with Jesus that we hope to have with our children. Not only sharing in his victories and joys, but also in his pains and sacrifice. Paul continues, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul had a goal, that is to know Christ. It was his utmost desire, and he gave it a full court press. You know, if you've played basketball, you know when the coach presses, it ratchets up the intensity. Suddenly, you're covering your opponent everywhere on the floor, from sideline to sideline, from inline to inline. It's kind of a mayhem which results. And this is the intensity that Paul put into knowing Jesus. He pressed. For the knowledge of Christ. See, righteousness is gained not by us trying, but by trusting. But then we build up our faith, and it requires effort. Faith is not a passive thing. It's active and aggressive. Paul presses on. He applies every ounce of his energy and attention to achieving the goal of knowing Christ. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Understand, at this point in his life, Paul had been a Christian for 30 years. And he'd come a long way. But he recognizes that he had a long way to go. He says, I haven't apprehended. None of us have arrived. We're all pressing on. Never stop growing spiritually. You know, it's been said, the largest room in the world is the room for improvement. Never stop pressing forward. Paul continues, but one thing I do, 
And notice his laser focus here. It's not this, it's this one thing I do, not these 50 things I dabble in. That reflects some of us. You know, there are a million activities in this world that will distract you from seeking God. Knowing God demands focus and clearing the schedule and making time. Realize it's hard for an Olympic athlete to be world class in more than one event at a time. I used to wonder why in the world the winner of the 100-yard dash couldn't also win the 200 and the 400 and the 800 and whatever races they hold, man. I'm thinking fast is fast. But at that level, the nuances of each race demands a specialization. You can't be world class in more than one or two events at a time. And the same is true in life. You can't be world class in everything. You have to choose where you want to spend your time. Do you want to be world class in sports trivia? Or world class in managing your stocks and bonds? Or world class in woodworking? Or world class playing video games? Are you kidding me? I mean, what do you want to be world class in? Paul wanted to know Christ. It was his one thing. What is your one thing? It should be knowing Jesus. Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. You know, one of the ways that Satan distracts us from seeking to know Jesus is by bringing up our past, doesn't he? The devil is an astute historian of already forgiven sins. He likes to bring them back. But we need to know what God forgives, he forgets. What's been covered by the blood of Jesus has been forgotten in the mind of God. And we need to follow suit. Let's move on. Forgetting those things which are behind. I've heard it said, there are two things that you can't do backwards. Drive a car and live your life. You can't. Certainly we need to deal with unresolved issues. If an apology needs to be issued, we need to issue it. If restitution is owed, it needs to be paid. But I don't believe in dredging up distant memories and going backwards just for the sake of going back into the past. It's in the past now. Leave it there. I don't see the value of a wild goose chase down memory lane. Paul writes, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Forget the past and focus on the glorious future that you have in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us that old things have passed away. Now all things have become new. Learn to see yourself in Christ. Paul sums it up in verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind... And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. We started out by faith. We've walked by faith. Now let's finish by faith. Let's walk by the same rule, by faith. And then verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk. As you have us for a pattern... For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's speaking here of the Judaizers. 
by adding to simple faith in Christ, they had cheapened his work on the cross. See, Jesus is enough. If I can do anything, if you can do anything to make yourself right with God, then Jesus would have never had to die for you in the first place. The cross would have been in vain. Even today, there are still enemies of the cross. There are people, there are preachers that try to dilute, dilute its importance. Some folks today are embarrassed by the cross. They view it as an insult to modern sensibilities. Oh, that, that bloody, gory cross. But boy, apart from that cross, there is no remission of sins. If not for that cross, you and I would go to hell. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Reminds me of a poem. You're just out of date, said young Pastor Bates to one of our faithful old preachers who'd carried for years in travel and tears the gospel to poor sinful creatures. You still preach on Hades and shock cultured old ladies with your barbarous doctrine of blood. You're so far behind you'll never catch up. You're a flat tire stuck in the mud. For some little while, a bit of a smile enlightened the old preacher's face. Being made the butt of ridicule's cut did not ruffle his sweetness and grace. He turned to young Bates, so suave and sedate. Catch up, did my ears hear you say? Well, I couldn't succeed if I doubled my speed. My friend, I'm not going your way. <laughs> and likewise, Paul and these Judaizers, they were going different directions, man. Paul loved the cross. The Jews despised it. Paul continues to describe the false teachers in Philippi, verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Their real motive was their own selfish gain. And whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They were earthbound in their thinking. They lacked the mind and heart of heaven. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, I hope you realize our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we need to think ahead. Here is not our home. I hope you know that. We're only passing through. Heaven is the goal. Our future is not down here. It's up there. That's where our focus needs to be. He says, and he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. As we've noted before, our redemption will not be complete until Jesus has restored everything that sin has defiled, and that includes these mortal bodies. At the rapture, these corruptible bodies will be raised incorruptible, reunited with our spirit in the clouds. Here's Paul's point. If you're a settler, if you're pinned down by warring Indians, and you know the cavalry is just over the hill, where are your eyes going to be focused? Over that hill. And that's why we need to look to Jesus. Guys, the cavalry is coming. And his name is Jesus. Well, Philippians 4 begins. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Continue in the faith. He calls them beloved. Continue in love as well. He says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche, 
to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now apparently, Euodia and Syntyche were two squabbling sisters in the church at Philippi. And news of their tiff had made it all the way to Rome. In the Greek language, Paul's grammar seems to indicate that both ladies were at fault in the dispute. Now what happened between these ladies? Well, we really don't know. Was it a slight? Did Euodia forget to send Syntyche the invitation to the baby shower? Was it a misunderstanding? Was there some jealousy or competition going on between them? Nobody really knows. But we know how Paul settles the rift. He doesn't rebuke the girls. He doesn't really instruct the girls other than to say, be of the same mind in the Lord. You know, there's no such thing as a conflict-free family. I'm sure it's not your family. It's definitely not the family of God. Disputes, hurt feelings, arguments will arise. A mature believer shouldn't be surprised when humans, even redeemed humans, act like humans. We need to expect some tension and friction among us. Just don't let it unravel your faith. When it occurs, make sure you work through it. Show love. Show humility. Work it out. Be of the same mind in the Lord, Paul told them. Verse 3 And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know, being a pastor can be a dangerous job at times. And here Paul encourages the pastor in charge there at Philippi to help mediate between these two warring women. Oh boy, I'm sure he got some combat pay or something. Sounds like a good job for Pastor James, if you ask me. I mean, who wants to get between two warring women? Certain disputes, though, require outside help. These sisters needed some help. They needed an arbitrator. And so when necessary, those in leadership should step in and try to facilitate communication and guide the parties in the right direction. Who was Paul's true companion there in Philippi? We don't really know. But God knows his name's written in the book of life. Well, verses 4 through 7 reel off a series of short commands, sort of bursts of wisdom. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now recall, there's a difference between peace with God and the peace of God. See, peace with God is what happens when we come to Christ and are reconciled. But the peace of God is a piece of God's peace. It's a slice of His composure. It's a sense of his invincibility. It's a sprinkling of his love. It's something we feel and know in our hearts. It's the peace of God. And in verses 4 through 7, we have one of the very few formulas that exist in the Bible. We can't manufacture peace. It's a supernatural work of God's Spirit. But there are five steps that we can take to put ourselves in position to experience God's peace. 
And so here's where you need to get out your little pen, your piece of paper, and you need to jot some things down. Here we go. Here's step number one for you. If you want to know the peace of God, verse 4, rejoice in one thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. I can't always rejoice in my circumstances. Some circumstances are depressing. But I can always rejoice in the goodness and grace of God. Rejoice in one thing. Rejoice in the Lord. Despite your circumstances. Verse, two is, uh, verse 5 is step 2. Be satisfied with few things. Notice he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord's coming back soon. So live light. The word gentleness here means moderation or the ability to live without. In other words, we need to travel light. If we get enamored with earthly possessions and ambitions, we set ourselves up for a major letdown. You know, I do a little bit of traveling these days. And I've discovered that the, the more enjoyable the trip is directly related to how light I pack. You know, I usually just carry one little suitcase, three weeks or three days, I got one little suitcase, and it rolls, Kathy bought me a new one, it rolls really nice, and, and it makes for the, an enjoyable trip. The lighter you pack, the more enjoyable the trip. That's what Paul's saying, travel light, the Lord is at hand, we're not going to be here long, don't accumulate a lot of stuff. It's been said, contentment in this life comes not from getting more, but from expecting less. I think so. So, rejoice in one thing, be satisfied with few things. And then verse 6 provides us three more steps. Worry about nothing, pray about everything, turn all those cares into prayers, and then be thankful for anything. And so there you have it. Five steps to knowing the peace of God. Rejoice in one thing, be satisfied with few things, Worry about nothing, pray about everything, and be thankful for anything. And look what happens if you do. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. A new you should think new thoughts. Feed your mind on good and godly stuff. Stuff that's noble and just and pure and lovely and virtuous. And you'll grow in Christ. But feed on what's ungodly. And it's garbage in, garbage out. You don't want that. Paul says in verse 9, These things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do... And the God of peace will be with you. Notice what Paul's saying here. He doesn't say, do what I say and not what I do. No, he says the opposite. He says, not just do as I say, do as I do. Watch me. Watch what I do. Watch what I say. You do that and the God of peace will be with you. But we need to be that kind of an example to others, don't we? And then he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. See, the Philippians had supported Paul financially, but the pipeline had sort of shut off for a time. Paul was excited to see Epaphroditus arrive with new resources from Philippi. And he explains his excitement. He says, not that I speak 
in regard to need. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. In other words, Paul says, I don't let my circumstances determine my joy and contentment. Paul learned to draw from Jesus in every situation. In prosperity or in poverty. His approach was the same. Paul lived from the inside out. He refused to let his physical situation dictate his spiritual condition. I love this poem by Ella Wilcox. She writes, One ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of the soul that decides the goal and not the calm or the strife. What is the set of your sails? What is the set of your soul? Paul writes in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's pain never caused him to doubt God and his prosperity never caused him to forget or neglect God. He was confident that the strength of Christ would sustain him in, in, in every situation. You know, the Christian can't lose. He or she can handle anything thrown at them through the power of Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ. <clears throat> In high school, I carried a pocket New Testament with me, and I, I had this verse underlined and circled in that little New Testament. And I would read it prior to every football game. And I always interpreted this verse in terms of winning the game and running the touchdown and triumphing over the opponent. Let's go! Let's go get them! We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And I suppose that was okay. But you know, when I gave up playing football, and reluctantly so, I also realized again that this verse applied. That Christ had strengthened me to play, but God also called me to move on from playing. And I could do that well as also through Christ who strengthens me. You know, He'll strengthen you for success on your job. Or He'll strengthen you in transition to another job. He'll give you strength to start your career. Or He'll give you strength to retire from your career and move on to other things. He'll strengthen you to raise your toddlers. And boy, you need strength. We're keeping Natalie's kids this weekend. He'll strengthen you to keep those toddlers. But he'll also strengthen you to let go of your adult children. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He's a Savior for all seasons, is he not? And then verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. You know, technically, Paul didn't need their support, but if God hadn't supported them through the Philippians, he'd have supported Paul some other way. But Paul appreciated their willingness to be used and to give to his ministry. He recounts their long history together. He says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, 
but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. But Paul appreciated their giving, but not because it came, from, came to him. God would have supplied his needs however. But he was happy that they had given so that the fruit of his ministry abounded to their account. He says, indeed, I have, an all, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Their generosity to Paul was considered by him a sweet-smelling sacrifice that also brought pleasure to God. Notice here, Paul thinks of charitable giving as actually a spiritual investment. He instructs the Philippians to give so that fruit abounds to your account, so that you'll get a dividend. And I think it's important that we think this way about our charitable giving. Hey, when we give to the Lord, we we need to see it as an investment. We need to make wise investments. You need to treat your charitable giving like a financial investment. That means you need to put your money in places where you feel like you'll get a good return. You need to invest in pastors who are truly teaching God's word and churches that are being vital in their community and ministries that are accomplishing things for the kingdom of God. Because where you invest your money is going to determine what kind of return and spiritual fruit abounds back to you. Verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Give to God's work and he'll abundantly Supply your needs. Now, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. And boy, is this interesting. Now, recall, Paul is in Caesar's palace. Not the Las Vegas hotel. But he's in the royal dungeon there in Rome. You remember chapter 1 told us that Paul was in jail for the furtherance of the gospel. From a Roman prison, God had given Paul the opportunity to preach the gospel to Rome's own royal household. And guess what? Many of them had taken heed because now these new believers who are in Caesar's court and are there with Paul, are sending their greetings to the church in Philippi. Isn't that cool? Paul had been thrown in jail for the furtherance of the gospel, and the gospel had gone further. While he was there, he had been able to witness to to Caesar's own household, and many of them had come to know Christ. And now they're sending their greetings to Philippi. I'm sure that brought Paul great joy. And so prisoner Paul, always dancing in the midst of danger, Concludes his letter in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.